0: Positive cases of COVID-19 have been trending upward nationwide, driven by spikes in states like Arizona, Oklahoma, North Carolina, and Texas. The WHO marked the largest single-day increase in COVID-19 cases, more than 183,000 cases globally. More than half were from Brazil and the United States. And a new treatment emerges in the fight against COVID-19. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. As we continue to adjust and readjust our lives under the strain of the coronavirus, have you ever stopped to ask, just what is the coronavirus? And why is it here? The way we talk about it, you'd think it was this lurking monster or ever-present cloud ready to rain on your parade. We don't know how this virus will behave. We don't know if it will change or mutate, which viruses can do.
1: This virus is probably with us beyond this season or
0: beyond beyond this year. Even someone who's not sick, who who has either minimal symptoms or or no symptoms, can also shed the virus and potentially uh, be contagious as a result of that. But it's actually just a microscopic lump of biology. So what is it? I've had my fair share of biology courses, and there are moments that I ask the same question. So today, we're going to pull out our audio microscopes and zoom into the biology of viruses in general, and this one specifically. Viruses are a source of endless fascination in biology, because they confound how we think about life in general. Biologically, viruses are as simple as it gets. They aren't even full cells. All they have is an outside layer, an envelope as we call it, and some genetic material, DNA or its cousin RNA. You've heard of DNA. If DNA is like the recipe book for life itself, RNA is like the picture you take on your cell phone of the page of the book you really want. Most cells have a bunch of other machinery inside them. Machinery to take in and digest material from the outside world, to eat. Machinery to translate and replicate their genetic material, to reproduce. Machinery to move around. Machinery to excrete waste, and so on. But viruses don't have any of that, and because they don't, they really can't do anything. There's a whole debate in biology about whether or not they're even alive. Instead, they're the ultimate parasites. They rely on infecting actual cells and hijacking their machinery. We often think about viruses as being evil, and that's for good reason. Viruses like smallpox, influenza, and HIV are some of the worst murderers in human history. But here's the crazy thing. They don't do it on purpose. In fact, a virus would just as soon not hurt its host, and there are plenty of viruses that don't because it would allow them to jump just as easily between us. The fact that they are so deadly, for them, is just incidental. This coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, as it's officially called, is a cousin of a few other coronaviruses, named that way because they look like the sun, corona, under a microscope. Its cousins have infected us before.
1: The Centers for Disease Control reports the deadly MERS virus has reached the United States. The galloping rise of SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And as the disease spreads to North America, the consequences are multiplying.
0: Coronaviruses are really simple. They have a fatty envelope that's studied with those special proteins that help it infect cells that look like sun's rays under a microscope. And then there's some RNA inside. We think SARS-CoV-2 co-evolved with bats, where it's relatively harmless but it happened to be able to infect humans too. And it made the jump in Wuhan late last year when it had the chance. And boom. Chinese
1: health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. China says the number of people infected by a mysterious respiratory virus has more than tripled over the weekend.
0: The toll from that deadly coronavirus now grows, spreading from Wuhan, China, and tonight that first case here in the US Though, this is the first time humanity has come in contact with this coronavirus, so our immune systems have no built-up immunity to it. But generally, our immune systems are really good at identifying, targeting, and destroying new viruses. But it takes a while. But here's the problem. Sometimes, our immune system is too good. It gets all hot and bothered, revving up too fast. It starts throwing every weapon it has at the virus at the same time. And there's collateral damage. The body it's trying to protect in the first place. In fact, just this week, scientists identified another old drug that reduces mortality to COVID-19. But it doesn't target the virus, like remdesivir, another effective medication, does. Dexamethasone is a steroid medication that tones down the immune system itself. And it reduces COVID-19 mortality because it stops the immune system from causing all that collateral damage, killing the person it's trying to save. Of course, there's so much more to learn about the biology of this virus than we already know now and virologists and microbiologists have been feverishly studying it to give us every advantage we can muster in the fight against it. Dr. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist on the front line of that fight. She'll join us to talk more about the biology of the coronavirus after the break. Friends, if you like this podcast, I think you'll really like my book. In it, I dissect the epidemic of insecurity that is shaping this pandemic and beyond. I hope you'll check it out at HealingPoliticsBook.com. We're joined today by Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who is a virologist and research scientist at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.
0: So I wanna jump right in. Um, For folks who don't quite understand what a virus is, can you break that down? And I just, to preface the question, there's a whole debate about whether or not viruses are living things, and why they exist. And so, you know, who better than a virologist to explain to us why the hell we are where we are right now and what this thing is?
1: Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And while um, I'll try to avoid the sometimes contentious philosophical debate as to whether viruses are alive or not, essentially viruses are little infection machines. They're essentially little packages of genetic material. DNA or a related molecule called RNA that exists to replicate themselves. And they're essentially little machines that need to get into a host uh, in order to do that because they don't actually carry all of the equipment that they need to fully manufacture new viruses based on the information that they carry. So that means that viruses look for a host in the case of sars coronavirus 2 That host is us. And so what the virus, it doesn't want to do anything. It's just programmed effectively to get into our cells, make copies of its genome, make the viral proteins that it needs to package those copies of that genome, and then secrete those packages out of the cell to infect a new cell to make more viruses and repeat the process. Most of the time, uh, it's not in a virus's best interest to actually kill its host. So, the fact that we develop disease as a result of contracting these viruses is really incidental. The viruses are not evolving to become more pathogenic necessarily. They're just evolving to be able to replicate more efficiently. And sometimes that interaction with the host, in this case, again, us, means that people can react badly to that virus. And that is ultimately what makes people very sick from COVID 19.
0: Mm. And it would be logical, right? Because if the virus were to kill all of the hosts, then it couldn't really replicate. And so what about this virus? You know, what do we know about the structure of this virus that makes it, you know, the quote unquote big one? Why did this virus go pandemic? What is it about the virus itself and its biology that has made it, you know, the the global pandemic that we know of today?
1: So I'll say right off the start that there are still a lot of things we don't know about this virus. Um, It's very new and we didn't know anything about its existence until December of 2019. So we haven't had a whole lot of time to study all of the ins and outs of why this virus is so pathogenic, but we do know a few things that it has that other um, beta coronaviruses, which is the group of viruses that this virus is in, don't have. So we know that it's related to SARS Classic, um, SARS coronavirus that caused an epidemic in 2002, 2003. Um, it's also uh, more distantly, but still related to MERS coronavirus, which emerged in 2012. Now, both SARS classic and MERS coronavirus are more lethal than this virus. However, they are also less transmissible. So this virus carries the transmissibility of some of the other common cold coronaviruses, um, meaning that it's readily transmissible from person to person, and that's thought to be um, because of two different things at least. One of those is that it uses ACE2, uh, which is a human protein that's on the surface of respiratory and other types of cells as its receptor, and it can bind very efficiently to that receptor. And that uh, binding is what allows a virus to actually get inside a cell to infect it. So because of this efficient binding, um, it's very good at infecting human cells in the respiratory tract. So that's one reason why this virus might be more transmissible person-to-person compared to MERS coronavirus, which is not as transmissible from person to person.
0: So just to make, make sure I understand that, that part. Um, so the, the idea here is that when it gets into the body, it's hooking on to the cells that infects more, effe- more efficiently than some of the other coronaviruses did. Correct. Um, and that makes it more transmissible. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And so one thing we don't know about this virus is the minimum infectious dose. But most viruses, uh, it takes more than one virus particle to become infected with it. And that's because your respiratory tract has a variety of different barriers that uh, are engineered really into it to prevent viral infections and bacterial infections. Things like nose hairs, the shape of our respiratory tract, So you have to get enough viruses in there to encounter a cell that actually has the virus receptor on it to contact it. But because this virus can bind that receptor ACE2 very well, uh, it may need fewer viruses to get past all those other barriers like nose hairs and mucus and things like that.
0: So it's like biologically really sticky.
1: It's biologically really sticky for the types of cells that it can replicate well in. And that actually brings me to the second point, um, which is another another feature of this virus that is very different from SARS classic, and that is that it has, after the virus enters a cell, it has to be further processed. Um, So the virus gets brought into a compartment in the cell called an endosome. The virus doesn't replicate in that compartment. It actually has to escape from that compartment and get into the larger uh, sort of body of the cell called the cytoplasm. In order to escape that compartment, it has to go through a process called fusion, and in order for fusion to happen, the spike protein that is on the surface of the virus particle has to be cleaved or processed by a cellular protease, which is just an enzyme in your cell that can clip this protein. So it has to be clipped at a certain spot in order to expose uh, the part of the spike protein that mediates this fusion process this virus, sars coronavirus 2 has a consensus site for a type of protease called furin. Furin is very ubiquitously expressed in a number of different cell types, so there's lots of furin around in a lot of different kinds of cells. So that means that this virus can undergo that fusion process, get into the cytoplasm, and replicate in any cell, effectively, that has furin in it, um, which, again, is most cells.
0: Mm. So like furin is kind of like the scissors that cut here on the cell. And if the cells um, have furin, then this virus can infect them. And that may explain why the virus doesn't just infect the lungs, which have furin, which have these spe- special scissors, but also maybe infecting the intestines, maybe infecting the inner cells of of the vasculature across the body, which may be explaining the strokes, and maybe why this is a lot more complex a disease. Uh, than we had initially thought. Absolutely. So as we think about this this aspect of the biology, does it make it any easier to treat or um, maybe to design a vaccine around, uh, or does it make it harder?
1: Well, the, the good news about the vaccine is that so far anyways, the spike protein, where um, which is both involved in binding ACE2 and in being processed by furin, doesn't seem to be changing that much in terms of its, its structure or its shape. And that's the basis on which vaccines work effectively. So antibodies um, are generated. Those antibodies re- recognize specific, essentially three-dimensional shapes um, that are part of that spike protein. And because this virus doesn't appear to be changing um, in critical spots of that spike protein, uh, those shapes should remain the same. So that means, that's good news. It means that essentially we, we aren't trying to hit a moving target when we're designing vaccines uh, that will target largely the spike protein of the virus. In terms of treatment, it's a lot more complicated than that. So there are a couple different types of treatment strategies that could be effective with COVID. One of them, to just today, we heard that dexamethasone treatment may be helpful for patients with severe COVID. So dexamethasone wouldn't target the virus at all. Dexamethasone is intended to, it's a, it's a very potent immunosuppressant and anti-inflammatory drug that actually um, suppresses the host responses to infection. The host response to the infection is often just as important as the virus itself in determining how severe disease is. And one thing we really don't know a lot about this virus is how much of the many different presentations of COVID-19 are caused by the virus or are caused by the host response, um, essentially getting out of control. And what dexamethasone does is it targets those out of control inflammatory responses that are associated with the most severely ill patients who are on ventilators.
0: So to get back to what you were saying earlier, you were saying that you know it's not essential for a virus to want to make a host sick. In fact, making a host sick is not in the evolutionary goal of the virus. It wants to just go on by and keep infecting people and people not doing anything to reduce the transmission because when we get sick, we reduce transmission in the same ways that we've we've been, whether it's um, it's social distancing or or wearing a mask. And w- what you're arguing here is that, In some ways, the sickness isn't just about what the virus does to us, but it's what our immune system does in response to the virus. And so taking a medication like dexamethasone, which is a common steroid which knocks down the immune response, may in fact be just getting our body out of its own way when we know that some of the worst outcomes of the virus are just our body's immune system going crazy. And it's interesting, right? Because the other part of it is that we've we've heard about this illness that children are getting now, which is um, this uh, multi-syndrome immune response, which is just the, the children's own immune system going nuts after having been exposed to this. And so it does make sense that, you know, even though it does sound counterintuitive to knock back your immune system when you're facing a virus, that it may be that when the immune system is going is overheating that you wanna cool it down a little bit. And that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, and, and that's, um, for many different emerging diseases, one reason why oftentimes they are the biggest threats is because the virus hasn't really evolved with that host for a long time. So if a virus that's normally been circulating in bats, potentially other species we don't really know for this virus, it's adapted to those. And it's probably, over time, become less pathogenic in those organisms because it's against the virus's own evolutionary interest to kill those organisms. It gets into us, and um, in some people, it doesn't seem to do much at all. Um, There are very mild symptoms, and there have been reports of these asymptomatic cases. You know, whether they're truly asymptomatic uh, for the entire duration of the infection is a matter, a whole other matter of debate. But um, there are clearly people also who are getting these very severe Um, very diverse clinical presentations of COVID. So there are these people who are having strokes and these um, types of vascular injuries. There's been suggestions that some people have myocarditis um, or cardiomyopathy, and there's children um, who are having these sort of systemic uh, inflammatory reactions. And we really don't know a lot about it other than that those types of syndromic diseases are probably largely mediated by um, aberrant host responses to infection. You have this initial suppression of these helpful host responses, um, and then that leads to essentially an unregulated response where the virus has become so entrenched, it's so widespread in the host that now it's starting to set off alarm bells, except the the normal levers that you would use to fine-tune that inflammatory response are gone. And so these inflammatory cytokines, um, many people have heard about the cytokine storm that is suspected to underlie a lot of this. Those uh, regulatory valves essentially just are taken out of the equation. So it turns on inflammation um, and that can be systemic. It could potentially affect a lot of different organ systems and tissues. And that's why I think we're starting to see this really broad array of different disease presentations for patients who have severe COVID.
0: So it's it's almost like we send in the cavalry too late and then the body realizes that you've now got a really serious infection and then just pushes the nuclear button. Um, And so you'd really want something in the middle, but it's that pushing the nuclear button that's really a problem because, of course, when you push the nuclear button, it's kind of mutually assured annihilation. And so the body's really getting sick to try and beat this virus, but in the process hurting itself.
1: That's exactly right. And so normally, I mean, a lot of people hear inflammation and they think that's bad. Um, Inflammatory, you know, we take anti-inflammatory drugs all the time, uh, Advil Things like that. um, We don't want inflammation, but inflammation is actually a really important part of the initial steps your body takes to control infection. And the purpose of inflammation is uh, to really contain that virus infection to where it it is and not allow it to spread throughout the body. Um, So it's really, inflammation is really good and really helpful when uh, it's causing things like the symptoms of the common cold. That's Inflammatory cytokines telling cells, um, hey, go to the upper respiratory tract. There's a viral infection. You need to kill those infected cells. You need to start making antibodies. We need to get this virus out of here. When that doesn't happen initially and then it happens across the board, it's saying we don't know where the inflammation is, so let's just attack everything. And that's when you start to see this really severe immunopathology that some of these COVID patients have.
0: That's really helpful to understand. And it explains a lot about why um, the symptoms are both so severe and also there's such a diverse presentation uh, in in patients. I want to ask, um, if we think about where we go from here and how we're operating to try and reduce a second wave, is there anything that understanding the biology of this virus can unlock for us in, in terms of making our classic public health interventions better?
1: I think so. Um, I think that there's actually a lot that we can still learn. One of those things I mentioned a little earlier, that is knowing what the minimum infectious dose is. So right now, we don't have a very good idea of transmission risk um, in the sense of being able to quantify it. We know a few things. We know that you know, you're more likely to become infected indoors you're more likely to be infected um, in a situation where people are vocalizing a lot. We know that from the the choir experiment. We also know that probably most transmission isn't being driven by small particle aerosols, meaning really small respiratory droplets that can linger in the environment for hours or days or be transmitted through um, uh, an hVAC system for example but we don't really know like. In those, a lot of people ask me, What is safe? What is a safe way to reopen? When can I go to restaurants? When can I do this? And the truth is, like, we know some of the things that increase or decrease risk, but we just don't know by how much in many of those cases. And having a better understanding of how much virus do you have to be exposed to? To actually get infected would be a very practical piece of information that could really better inform people on how these types of measures um, would influence their risk and help people decide what risks are okay to take and which are not.
0: Yeah, no that that is uh, that is a really important point, and I will say that there have been a lot of things uh, about this virus that um, that is astounding. One of them, you know, just from a pure epidemiologic transmission perspective, is uh relatively how few cases we've seen directly traced back to to protests. And I've been trying to just square it in my mind because I did, as much as I stand, you know, I was out there protesting. Um, it's a hazard, right, when you have a large group of people getting together and yelling at the top of their lungs in the middle of a pandemic. But at the same time, it's been rather surprising that we're now several weeks out and there just aren't that many cases. And, you know, to my uh, mind, it has something to do with the fact that people were walking, they were outside and, and they were many of them were wearing masks. But um, I still think that there's a lot for us to learn about what that says to us about, about droplet transmission. I really, really appreciate your uh, work in, in helping us to understand this virus and in sharing your insights with us. I think um, having a better sense of what this virus actually does and, and also, quote unquote, what it wants to do um, uh, can can really help folks to understand how to keep themselves safe. So um, thank you for your time and thank you for your work. And the last question we always ask everyone is, you know, how are you spending your days right now?
1: Um, I'm spending my days uh, in a, a very similar way to how I spent them before by writing grants and papers, which is actually the usual life of an <laughs> academic scientist. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for your time, your voice, your work, and, uh, and for coming on our show.
1: It's my pleasure, Abdul. Anytime.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. This weekend, in a remarkably ill advised rally that was predictably poorly attended, given that there's a pandemic happening, President Trump said this. You know, testing is a double-edged sword. Here's the bad part. When you, test a f- when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. His campaign almost immediately said that he was joking. But the remark is damning of the whole response. Either he's serious, and he attempted to slow testing for the virus to make case numbers look better, or He's joking and he just made light of a virus that took 120,000 American lives. Testing remains as important as it ever has been, and make no mistake, we still don't have enough of it. That's why we need a new president. Here at Crooked Media, we're organizing to do just that, and there's nowhere better to do that than here in Michigan. Join us at Team Michigan at votesaveamerica.com. And if you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, Donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeo Suzawa and Alex Huviera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed.